All right, well, uh, we're going to dive into Matthew 7. Uh, the passages I've gotten assigned over the last number of years at Reality have always been interesting. So I think the, the second one I got assigned was, uh, was Servants Obey Your Masters. Um, and then today it is, if you don't make it through the narrow gate, you're going to be destroyed. So we're going to work through this and see that ultimately there's a powerful message of transformative love in this passage. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are here today because you are a God that delights to reveal himself. You are a God that shows us who you are. And you show us who you are so you can draw us into closer relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be amazed by that fact today. That we are not here to just memorize some doctrine or learn some truth or learn some facts. We are not here to just be intellectually impacted by your word. We are here to be transformed by your love and by your grace. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to clearly and faithfully proclaim your word. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us to respond to your word. Whether we've been a follower of Jesus for decades or we're just trying to figure out what Christianity is, I pray that we would be both challenged and given hope and encouragement through these words today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know this, that human beings have always been shaped by imagined realities. We've always been shaped by how we perceive the world to be. Ultimately, what you believe to be most true about yourself, what you believe to be most true about others, and what you believe to be most true about our world really just determines how you live. Our lives are bound and unleashed by what we can imagine. Our lives are built and destroyed by what we can imagine. Our lives are built always on what we think is possible in our heads. And this is where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredible gift from Jesus it's a gift to our imagination. It's a gift and a vision of what it looks like to belong to him. What it looks like to be a part of his family. Because he's really revealing his character. And he's saying, come with me, be united to me, and these things will be true of you. These things will be true of my people. He's teaching us what it looks like to be a part of his family. To be in relationship with God himself. And we need this imagination. We need this vision so desperately. Because there are so many other competing visions coming in. And so into this, the Sermon on the Mount interrupts this. Theologian Stanley Hauervoss describes it this way. He says, vision is the necessary prerequisite for ethics. So the Beatitudes are not a strategy for achieving a better society. They are an indication, a picture, a vision of the inbreaking of a new society. Many theologians have called this the closest thing Christianity has to a manifesto. It's a description, again, from Jesus himself of what his people are to be and what they are to strive for. But it's not a message of, like, morally improving yourselves. It's not just do better, try harder, believe this, and accomplish this. What is it? It's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to being transformed by Jesus, knowing that anything he's asking us to do, he's doing it with us, and he's giving us the power to do it. We are never alone when we're in relationship with Jesus Christ. But we get to the end of this message— we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We get to the end of this incredible description of who Jesus is, who his people are. And he asks all of his hearers there, and, and us by extension, he asks them to choose. And it sounds kind of hard and maybe even harsh depending on your background. Definitely sounds harsh for our culture. He, he says, basically, choose me and I will lead you to abundant life. I will lead you to what God's called you to be. Or he says, reject me. And the only other path is one of destruction, one, one of absolute degradation. And that's a hard word, right? He's standing in front. But again, he's not just asking them to pick this moral philosophy or pick that moral philosophy or decide who's most right. He's inviting them into relationship. 
And, and, and in the background, we know this from the rest of the story of the Bible, every human being is created as an image bearer of God, designed by God, made by God to live with God and to live for God. Sin and brokenness destroys that and takes us away from God. But Jesus, through redemption and renewal and grace and forgiveness, can redeem and renew that image in us. And so what he's telling us, in essence, is the only way to be truly human, the only way to be truly free, the only way to be truly who God's created you to be is in relationship with Christ himself. But it's a harsh message in the sense that there are not two ways. And we don't like that in our culture, right? I want to wade in a little bit over here, but not commit. Who here RSVPs as soon as they get an invitation to a party? One dude back there and you're lying. Right? Try planning an event and you don't know who's coming because they have fear of missing out and they always want to remain non-committed. And what Jesus is saying is that's not part of who you are. You are to go all in. You're to be someone that is, that is fully devoted to me and that's the only way you can be fully free. You're not fully free by keeping your options open. You're fully free by, by surrendering your options. You're not free to, to discover yourself by going off on your own path. In fact, the only way you can discover yourself is through self-denial through coming before Jesus and saying, I have little idea what it means to be a human being. I have no idea what it means to flourish. I have no idea how it means to spiritually grow. Please teach me and please help me. See, the challenge for us is God's focused on relationship and drawing us in. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is doing that. It's drawing us into relationship. It's giving us a relational grid. How we treat others is evidence of what we believe about God. That the process of him drawing us in is so important. It's what Britt preached on last week. I'd encourage you to listen to that message if you haven't. Prayer itself is not to reach an end goal. It's not so God can help us accomplish our five-year plan. It's so God can transform us and bring us into closer relationship with him as we pray. It's about the process. But, but so much in our society is about the end product, and so many things seem to be so easy to get. I mean, I used to have, growing up, dozens of phone numbers memorized. I barely know my own number today. Right? And maybe that's freeing up more of my brain to be focusing on other things, or, or maybe it's just making me dumber. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know this, that if I have Google Maps or Waze on, I will blindly follow it, even if I know it's taking me down the wrong path. Because <laughs> I have put my utmost trust in technology, and Waze must know something I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that's a one-way street, but Waze is telling me to go. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I mean, I've had this struggle with our kids, too, right? Someone gave us Alexa as a gift. If you don't know it, it's incredible. But Alexa sits in your, in your kitchen in our house, and, and it's connected to the Internet. I almost called her she. Isn't that crazy? Um, and you can ask Alexa to just you can ask Alexa what the weather is. You can ask Alexa to play almost any song you've ever heard in your entire life, and she'll immediately begin to play it. Now, we had just gotten Alexa a couple days before this, and I'm sitting down with my seven-year-old son, and he's having to do double-digit addition for the first time. And he's like, Dad, if I, if I have a calculator, why can't I just use a calculator? And I'm sitting down. This is a good, like, father moment to kind of teach your son. So I'm sitting down and telling him that, like, it's not just about getting the right answer. It's struggling through the process of learning how to do it. It's shaping your brain. It's growing you. It's making you smarter. And it took me about five minutes to persuade him that that was actually true. And fatherly duties done, I sit with my son and said, well, you just work hard. I'll be back to check on you in a while. Walk back down the hall into the back room of our house. And I swear I hear Alexa talking. <laughs> I've heard Alexa play music before, but I didn't know you could have kind of conversations with Alexa. And so I, I walk back down the hall and I hear my son, Alexa, what's 27 plus 14? <laughs> She's giving him the answer. Alexa, what's 37 plus 18? And I had to pause in the hallway and kind of collect myself and not laugh. <laughs> and I walked back down to him and I said, first off, well done. 
But secondly, I was serious about it. Like the process is actually important. It's not just about getting to the end goal. It's not just about accomplishing and finishing your homework. It's about you being transformed. And I think that's our challenge sometimes in our modern society when it comes to relationship with God. We want to memorize theology. I bet most people in here have exceptional theology, precise doctrine. But what's the point of doctrine? What's the point of, of knowing things accurately? It's transformation, right? It's bringing you in a closer relationship with God, which evidences itself and how you relate to others. Everything God's doing is to draw us into relationship, to transform us, to teach us who he is by revealing himself to us. And so we read in scripture that because we're drawn into relationship with God and because we are submitting ourselves to him to teach us, in essence, what it means is that we live a constrained life. Now, I don't like constraints. And they don't feel very free to me, so it's really hard for my own personality, but I think even for our culture to recognize that living constrained by God, living constrained by what he says is most true about himself and what he says is most true about you is a good and healthy thing. But it's something that we have to learn and embrace because our culture doesn't do it. It's easy for us, I think, to kind of just get so stuck in our culture that we don't realize how much in it is actually undermining our following of Jesus. So it's actually one of the things I'm most grateful for in some of our international partnerships. We have some churches that we work with in, uh, in Malawi and Southeast Africa. And earlier this year, I was with some pastors there just asking them to just teach me about the churches in your city. What are they doing well? What are their challenges? How can we pray for you? How can we partner? How can we learn from you? And I said, what's, what's one of the biggest challenges you're facing right now? And he says, well, our churches are syncretistic. And I'm thinking, okay, I know syncretism, I know that term. It's like when you blend these cultures and I'm thinking like, you know, ancient African religions being like incorporated into the church. And some of that certainly does happen. But then he went on to kind of give a definition of syncretism. And he, and he described it this way. He said, it's adopting cultural practices in a way that undermines following Jesus. And then I went, oh, crap. <laughs> right, because how much do we do that? How much do we allow what our culture tells us is true about ourselves, what our culture tells us is true about God, to really shape us and really ultimately push us away from God and not keep us close? The main theme we're going to look at today, and we'll, we'll be going through doctrine, we'll be going through these passages, but the main theme, that our hope in this passage, is that staying close to Jesus is where we find life. So we're going to look at how we stay close to Jesus by working through this passage, and we're going to look at what it looks like to live a life shaped by Christ. So first, we're going to look at, we're going to look at three parts. To the, our, our hope in staying close to Jesus involves these three, these three things. We are to be constrained, we are to beware, and we are to be close. We are to be constrained by our relationship with Christ. We are to be, to, to be aware of anything that takes us away from Christ. And we're to be close to Jesus as a way of life as a way of finding hope and as a way of finding everything we need and all the strength we need to live constantly, God wants to do that with us. So first here, be constrained. And again, this is our challenge because our culture doesn't believe this. The, the narrow life, having limited options, is actually a good thing. Now, this isn't just about a, a list of things you're not supposed to do that Jesus doesn't like or things that you're supposed to do that Jesus likes. Again, it's about being drawn into relationship with Christ. It's not just about what you believe intellectually. It's about how your, your relationship with God is transforming you. And we need doctrine for that. We need the Bible for that. We need all the things we do for that. But we must always keep in mind that it's drawing us into closer relationship. That's who God is. Listen to these verses. I'll read 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's pretty clear, right? Two roads, two gates, two destinies. What are the two destinies? 
One is life, and that sounds awesome. But one's a path of destruction. The promise that if we walk away from Christ, it's not just like rejecting a philosophical view of the world. It's actually, it's, it's actually dehumanizing. It's destructive to who we are and everything we would hope to do. That there is no kind of middle way. We love middle ways, right? Oh, I'm not extreme. I'm more of a moderate. I'm not like these guys. I'm not like these guys. We always like to plot our, our third way right through the middle. There is no third way here. There is only like on a path to following Christ or on a path away from him. Tom Wright says this in talking about this passage. Jesus ends the great Sermon on the Mount with a set of warnings. If you've come with them this far, you need to know it's not just a matter of holding on to the steering wheel and hoping for the best. You need to concentrate. Take note of danger. Realize that you can't presume on anything. You've got to keep your wits about you. You see, the passage is so extreme. It's so, you know, very direct, very black and white. Because it's very much that way in our lives. And we need to really believe that and own that. That I cannot live, thrive, or truly be a human being. I cannot have any freedom without full relationship with Christ. In fact, the more my relationship with Christ is hindered, the more my true freedom to be a human being and to live and do all the things he's called me to do. I have no hope, no life, no freedom without him. But the challenge is I don't really believe that and most of you don't really believe that. We believe that we can pull Jesus in when we need help and we can kind of recorrect our path, but we don't envision a life where we're walking arm in arm down the path with him, but that's what's here. But, but the, the beautiful thing, and we read this elsewhere in scripture, is that Christ is this narrow gate. We are coming to Jesus himself and, and the path is not just find it yourself, try to do your best. The path is when you come to this narrow gate, you realize that Jesus is there to welcome you in and to walk alongside you. No matter what the path is, no matter how hard it gets, he's gonna be the one that's gonna empower you. And so because he's with you and because he's empowering you, that narrow gate and that hard road gets transformed into an easy yoke and a light burden. It's a crazy tension. And if you're not a Christian, I understand that sounds nuts. And if you're struggling as a Christian, it probably still sounds nuts. But the reality is there's real strength in relationship with Christ. There's real strength in, in, in self-denial and laying your life down and saying, I don't have it all figured out. God, community, I need you. I need someone to speak into my life and help lead me and guide me. But again, the challenge is we don't like constraints and we don't like narrow pathways as human beings that have a sinful heart, but certainly as Americans in the 21st century. Now, I'm 43 years old, and I still hate rules. I still hate restrictions. And I, and I describe myself as being more of a spirit of the law kind of guy, right? So the speed limit's 55, but I, it just means that ordinary drivers should only drive under 55. But, but I'm a really good driver, so I can safely go 70, so that's fine. <laughs> and I'm constantly reinterpreting these rules and these laws, sometimes even with my relationship with Christ, right? I know this isn't entirely pleasing to you, but I've got really good reasons for it. And give me some leeway, give me some freedom. And that's really kind of how I can operate. And I understand that that's completely contrary to what this passage is teaching. Struggling through this passage this week, God was doing more work in my heart to get this message ready than he's done in a long time. So imagine me at 43, still not liking strengths and, and, and restraints and all that kind of stuff. And then take me back to, to age 18, where I have a lot more strength and a lot more stupidity and a lot less experience in life. And then put me on a hike with about six friends going up Half Dome. So if you haven't done Half Dome, they call it Half Dome because the, the final climb is literally like one quarter of a circle. It's quite steep. And I was geared up and ready for that. And, I, and that's kind of terrifying. It's like one little wire up the side of the hill. And, and if you fall, you fall thousands of feet to your death. And so I was ready for that. <laughs> and there's signs that warn you to stay on the path, to follow instructions. And I'm constantly reinterpreting the signs. 
And so on the approach to Half Dome, there's this little switchback thing where you're having to go back and forth and back and forth. And by the time you get to that hike, you've already been hiking for hours and hours. And I was tired and annoyed. Certainly, I don't need to go back with these switchbacks. And there's all these things that say stay on trail. But again, that's for people of ordinary ability. And I'm 18. And I have (laughs) extraordinary ability in my mind. And so I go off the switchback. And I just go walking around towards kind of the edge of a granite cliff. But I got it. I'm fine. And I'm walking pretty comfortably and, and pretty much at peace. And I'm thinking I gained the system. I don't have to do the switchbacks. I'll beat all my buddies there. And I'm finally, I'm coming around the final turn. And I'm walking up. It's getting steeper. I'm walking up this little hill. And I see one of my friends up in front of me. And his eyes are just like, he's seen a ghost. And he looks at me and says, do you have any idea where you are? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He's like, turn around. And I turn around, and I don't know how I miss this, about six feet this side of me is just a sheer drop thousands of feet to the valley floor. And I felt so sure-footed because I was not aware of reality. And then suddenly, like, every granule of granite underneath my feet began to feel like it was going to slip. And I literally got down on all fours and crawled back up. (laughs) See, those warning signs weren't put there to limit me. They were put there to keep me from falling from my death, right? And, and, when I, and I, by the time I got up to the half dome again, I followed those instructions very strictly. A week after we went, a French tourist actually tried to go outside the wires and slipped and fell to his death. Um, that's just a happy ending of the story. But we need to take these warnings seriously. Like when God tells us this is a path to destruction, this isn't good for you, it's not so you can kind of test it out and wing it. It's because it's actually true. He's trying to reveal a constraint that's going to give you life and save you from pain and destruction, either to yourself or something you might do to friends or family or somebody else. It's real, and it's put in stark language because we need to understand it. So what does this narrow road look like? What does this narrow gate, this narrow way look like? Well, again, it looks like knowing and being known by Jesus. It looks like the Beatitudes. It looks like the content of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not, we're not left wondering what we're supposed to do. He's just given us a full description, a beautiful description of what life with him looks like. And we're called to pray and to work out. I mean, this, this summer is really a gift to reality as a church. It, it's this kind of Christian manifesto of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. These messages, again, aren't just intellectual content. They are there ready for you to draw you into closer relationship with Christ. If you haven't listened to all of them, I'd recommend go back and listen. Not so you can catch up on the sermons or, or not be behind on your doctrine or, or data or, or whatever that is. Right? Why? So you can be drawn into closer relationship with God. What else does it look like? It looks like 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It looks like Galatians 5. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we can't have that without knowing who the real Jesus is. But I think sometimes we're satisfied. We check the box on precise doctrine, at least in the conservative evangelical world. And once we check that box, then we stop. God wants you not to stop. God wants you to check that box and then fully take it into your heart and, and have it teach you that you can't do any of this stuff with Jesus, without Jesus, but you can begin to walk in it with him. God wants you to, to, to just take it all in and to be transformed by it. So imagine this with me now. Imagine your life. Take all your ambitions and your desires, and I want you to kind of imagine in your head that you were to map them out before you. And, and imagine that road and that path and where it leads all the things you want to do, all the things you want to accomplish, all the the things that you want to be on your resume or you want to be in your eulogy, 
And imagine it's this road that you're walking down. Does that road work if you're walking down it arm in arm with Jesus? Does it work? Do the ambitions work? Are they good and honoring to him? Are they transforming you in the right way? You see, freedom comes through relationship with Jesus. Freedom from shame, freedom and power to be the person God's made you to be, it comes from deeper relationships and more constraints. Uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, and this was challenging and beautiful. He says, We must not think of the holy life, the way of sanctification, as something hard and grievous which puts us into a state of servitude. Not at all. The glorious possibility that is offered us by the gospel of Christ is development as children of God and growing unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So if you and I regard the ethical teaching of the New Testament as something that cramps us, if we think of it as something that's narrow and restrictive, it means that we have never understood it. The whole purpose of the gospel is to bring us into this glorious liberty of the children of God. And these special injunctions are simply particular illustrations of how we may arrive at and enjoy it. Isn't that incredible? We were praying before the service and, and uh, Psalm 23 came up in my mind and came up right after that in the minds and, and, the, and the words of a few others. Don't you like the way the Holy Spirit does that? You're thinking and something's on your heart and then someone else says it. It just confirms that God's there. But think about Psalm 23. I was thinking about that in light of this message. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Constraints. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Constraints, limitations. He's leading you and guiding you. He's leading you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. Walking arm in arm on that road. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's a rod and a staff? It's a constraint, right? It's a limitation. It's leading you and it's guiding you. It's literally the, the shepherd would have to hook the sheep sometimes to keep them from danger. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, dependence upon God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, the destiny. All through scripture, we see that constraints lead to beautiful and wonderful freedom that God wants to have us. So if you're imagining that path in your head, where you want to go and what you want to do, and you're asking God to increase your imagination, increase your vision, you have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Jesus about it. We, we don't do this on our own strength. We can't do this on our own strength. It's not just us making a plan even for how we're going to please God. It's us submitting to God. We, we can't do it on our own. We cannot. And, and I mean, it'd be like, honestly, it'd be like me getting a running jump and doing a giant stage dive, stage dive down here with no one to catch me. It'd be exhilarating for about two seconds, right? And then it'd be pain and destruction to follow. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. All right, number two here, these beware passages. And this is where it gets really interesting in this passage. What we're supposed to be aware of. And really it's telling us to be aware of anything that takes us away from Christ. Listen to these words. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. It's again pointing us to the fact that you cannot separate the intellectual from the rest of life. You, you cannot be gospel-centered in the way you articulate your theology and not be gospel-centered in the way you live it out. 
it, it is to be judged by its fruits. Now, we need to be careful not to interpret this moralistically, but it's also very clear that you know someone by their fruit. We all struggle, we're all broken, we all have problems, but what is the overall character and demeanor of the life? Is the life one that's being transformed by Jesus? And for a preacher or a prophet, it's so much more important because they're influencing others. A prophet, a preacher, or anyone teaching you anything, the question we have to ask is, is it compatible with Christ's teaching? And the most immediate context for this is, is not just the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. It's this doing unto others what you would have them do unto you. Is this doctrine producing a charity of heart in these individuals? Is it transforming them to be more loving and more kind? Is your own personal pursuit of doctrine or learning or theology making you more in love with Christ, more united to God, and more loving and charitable to others? Or is it making you more judgmental and harsh? If it's making you more judgmental and harsh, you're missing the point. And we all have that struggle, but so often I think in the conservative evangelical world, our sense of what we call unity is really just our common bond of our shared sense of rightness, right? It's not unity with Christ, because if it's unity with Christ, the fruit is charity and love and loving and serving someone else. And even if they're in serious error, we're going to them to love and to serve them and to mourn with them and to pray for them and to appeal to them, not to judge them or to be angry at them or to feel vindicated in our theology because they're so clearly wrong and we're so clearly right. Now, John Sott has this, uh, this helpful warning. He says, this warning of Jesus gives us no encouragement, however, either to become suspicious of everybody or to take up as our hobby the disreputable sport known as heresy hunting. Rather, it is a solemn reminder that there are false teachers in the church and that we are to be on, guard, on our guard. Truth matters, for it is God's truth and it builds up God's church, whereas error is devilish and destructive. So again, we're not out there to be heresy hunters, but we are out there to ask ourselves a question like when we have differences of opinion or doctrine within the wider body of Christ, with people that, that, that believe in the triune God, that are calling out to Christ for their salvation, when we have these parameters, how are we judging them or, or are we being charitable to them? We can have disagreement, but you have disagreement with this bond of love and this unity in Christ. Because ultimately, what we really know, even if your doctrine's beautiful and amazing and super precise, Take no confidence in it. What are you to take confidence in? A transformed life that's evident that Jesus is walking side by side on the road with you. Deeper love, deeper fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, forbearance. If it's bearing those fruits, then it's not a pat on the back for you. You're doing great. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is powerfully working in your life and that Jesus is walking right along beside you. I find this interesting too. We, so often, I think, and again, in, in the conservative world, we tend to evaluate people just solely based on their theology. And I think we've seen this in a lot of the racist ideologies that have come up in our country through Charlottesville and the last number of years of this disillusionment we've been going through as a country. And, and disillusionment, again, is ultimately a good thing because it means we're no longer believing in a lie or in an illusion. And, and the truth is there's, there's lots of deep and ugly stuff. And I'm reading this book right now, working my way through it, and it's a painful read, but it's, it's incredible. It's called Stamp from the Beginning, and the historian calls it a definitive history of racist ideology in America. The most disheartening part of that book is that the opening number of chapters are about Christian theologies that were written to justify slavery. Some early American theologians that are held up as heroes, and here I'm not again to judge someone's eternal state or to tell you they're in hell or heaven or whatever, but I am here to say, are we reading them the way that Scripture would read them? I mean, some of these guys that are theological heroes wrote justifications for slavery. 
that, that a black person's soul can be saved and made white, but their body is hopelessly corrupt and evil and needs to be kept far from white European males who, after all, are the ideal of intellect and the ideal of beauty. These guys are writing this. These guys are preaching this. Some of them are personally going and buying slaves. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who one of these guys is his personal hero, and I was just saying, like, we need to, like, think about these things differently. Do you know what his first question was? And again, this isn't an indictment on him. It's an indictment on our culture. Yeah, but how did he treat the slaves? <laughs> what on earth? And yet, I guarantee you that some of my friends that would give that justification very quickly would, would pick apart the theology of somebody that didn't agree with them with exact precision. Where are we taking our confidence from? In our relationship with Christ or in the precision of our doctrine? Because again, it's not about us evaluating what they're doing and what they're saying. What's quite interesting is this guy asked me, okay, well, how did he treat them and what was he doing? And, and, and how could this person have written such great things and done such mighty works and yet held this theology? Can't we give him a pass on this, essentially, is what he was asking, because he's had such great impacts. And certainly he couldn't have done these great things if God wasn't working through him. And I said, again, I, I don't know what's in this guy's heart, but let me read you a couple of verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will plainly tell them, I never knew, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's intense. But it shows how important it is to be under doctrinal influences and theological influences that are driving you into closer relationship with Christ and that are driving you to love and serve and lay your life down for God and lay your life down for others. Any teaching, any context, any influence that is not transforming you to be more like Christ is, is not just a waste of time, it's potentially destructive. You know, the, the simplicity that Eugene Peterson speaks to issues like this with, I really appreciate. And he says this kind of radical idea here, right? What if the primary goal of a church or a community was to provide a context for you to be conformed in the image of Christ? Now, again, doctrine goes with that. Life goes with that. But, but what if the primary drive of your life was to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ? And, and it is, I'm sure, for everyone here to some measure or some degree, but it should be our driving passion. Do we know Christ in a way that's transforming us? Do we know the Christ of Scriptures? And do we know him in a way that's making a difference on our lives? And there are so many beautiful and wonderful examples of this throughout history. Uh, one of my favorite is a guy named Richard Wormbrand. And Richard Wormbrand was, wrote a, a, a book that has been translated in, I think, like 60 different languages. And it's called Tortured for Christ. He was a Christian minister in communist Romania. And he was imprisoned and tortured. And at any point in time, if he rejected Christ or even signed an agreement that he would never again share the gospel in Romania, they would have released him. But he said, I can't do that. And not only did he just kind of hunker down and, and, and just deal with the persecution of prison, he asked himself, what does it look like to be conformed into Christ's image here? Isn't that amazing? I love lessons about discipleship from people that really went through some stuff, right? I mean, 20-year-old bloggers have all kinds of wisdom too. <laughs> but to get lessons from someone that's really been through some serious struggle and pain is incredible. This is one of the things he says about discipleship and things he's learned. A man who visits a barber to be shaved or who orders a suit from a tailor is not a disciple but a customer. So one who comes to the Savior only to be saved is the Savior's customer, not his disciple. A disciple is one who says to Christ, 
how I long to do work like yours, to go from place to place, taking away fear, bringing instead joy, truth, comfort, and life eternal. To believe in him is not such a great thing. To become like him is truly great. And then he shares all these incredible stories. He shares the story of this pastor named Joseph that was in this particularly horrible cell where they stuffed all the guys that were dying of tuberculosis. And at that point in time, Richard Wormbrand couldn't stand up. He couldn't speak. He was barely surviving. But he was seeing beautiful things. And this pastor in this tuberculosis cell would give up any comfort he had to love and serve those that didn't know Christ. If, if someone was cold, he'd give him his blanket, meaning he would be that much more cold. If the rations were, were, were limited to, to almost nothing, he would give away his food so that weaker men who did not yet know Jesus could survive longer in the hopes that they could understand the love and the comfort of Christ. And, and, and he's, Richard Wormbrand talks about hearing Joseph share this gospel story. And this man says, I have lived in a world of such hopelessness and such darkness. I, I can't imagine anyone that could be so amazing as this Jesus you described. And Pastor Joseph says, you need to understand, everything I've done for you and everything I, I think and everything I speak is because I'm united to Christ and he gives me power. And the man says back to him, if Christ is like you, then I love him too. Now, again, like not all of us are going to be stuffed in a shell in a cell someplace, right? Like it's, it's not this idea is this is not to like make you feel guilty or to put some more responsibility on your back. It's just to give us a vision and an imagination of the impact that a transformed life can have in any and all circumstances. No matter where you are, no matter what's happening, if you're being transformed by Christ, then God is going to use your transformation to transform others, to show them what it really looks like to be in relationship with him. It's an incredible gift. Our assurance is to come from our relationship, not from our doctrinal precision. It goes to identity, right? That's what he says. Who would pick this fig from a thistle bush, right? It doesn't make sense. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. That is God's lesson for us. We are to be conformed more and more into Christ's image, to have our relationships, to have everything that we are repatterned and restructured about after who Jesus Christ is. It goes to so many illustrations in Scripture, like the, like the, the, the vine, right? How, do you, how, does the, how does the branch on the vine bear fruit in John 15? Because it's grafted in. It's getting energy. It's getting its sustenance. It's getting everything it is from the vine. And so it bears fruit because it's connected to Jesus. This is how Eugene Peterson summarizes this section of scripture. He says, don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. And at the end, in terms of like the, didn't we do great things in your name? He says this. It's as though Jesus would say to you, you missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't, you don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Again, there's many ways that I could like lighten the impact of this passage on my own heart and on yours. But there are signs that we need to work through scripture and feel the full weight of these things. Now, again, if we go to your imagination and what's shaping how you view what's possible for your world, what's shaping how you view what's possible for your character and your transformation, who's influencing that? I mean, it's not the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, yeah, I got that. But who else is, is, is a trusted, close advisor and how are they influencing you? What's having the greatest impact? Is it leading you down this path that's narrow, this narrow gate, this hard road where Jesus is going to walk alongside of you and transform you? Or is it taking you away from Christ? We need to know who our influences are. We need to be able to kind of have a vision for our future and ask God to bring people into our lives that can help us to see things clearly. And I'll tell you, it goes the other way too. Who are you influencing? 
And how are you influencing them? God uses our own ability to change others to actually continue to transform us. Philemon says what? He says that that as you're giving a reason for the hope that you have, as you're sharing the gospel, as you're sharing Jesus, even that act transforms you. So it's not go out and evangelize because it's your duty. It's go out and bear witness to who Jesus Christ because it's part of who you are. And as you do that, God strengthens you. As you do that, he conforms you. And it's this building up of power and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And so often we don't even access it. We live as though Christ is not on the road with us and that we're walking this long and lonely path by ourselves. So in the closing few minutes here, thirdly, what does it mean to be close to Jesus? I love reading um, the church fathers. And I especially love reading their preaching because it's so great. Again, it's a cross-cultural experience to see how they're responding to God's word given the unique cultural challenges that they have. And one of my favorites is a guy named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was a nickname that meant like golden throat or golden mouth. The guy was such an incredible preacher that they used to chant golden throat or golden mouth before he preached. (laughs) Crazy. But Chrysostom in preaching on this, he says this. He says, clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ and not even death can strip you bare. What he's saying is the key to to getting where you need to get is to get excited about who Jesus Christ is and to get excited about what transformation looks like and to get excited about where you're going to spend eternity and to get excited about the transformation work that God's doing in your life and in this world, to get excited about the new heavens and the new earth, to get excited about the new humanity. The key to kind of getting where you need to go is not beating yourself on the back or putting new rules in place to constrain you. It's being constrained by a dynamic, transformational, loving, gracious relationship with Jesus Christ himself. It's amazing. And we have the opportunity to do that. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like the Sermon on the Mount. It looks like the Beatitudes, poor in spirit. That viewing mourning is actually a good and transformational thing. That God is blessing the, the meek. That we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That we are to be merciful and pure hearted. We are to be peacemakers. We are even to embrace persecution if needs be. And, and, and the fruit of this is not, what we're not looking for again is that you can list out all the things that you did. That the fruit of what you're doing is not evidence you would present in, before a judge in a courtroom. Or it's not even necessarily stuff you could go to your community group and tell them about all the great and wonderful things you're doing. It's this long, progressive, faithful path where it is marked by you walking arm in arm with Jesus and Jesus continuing to transform you and to make you more like him. It's looking at the content of the Sermon on the Mount and saying to God, I want that. And I know Jesus is empowering me to live this way. Let's go for it and let's see what happens. Some of the themes you guys have gone through this summer, I was going back through them and some of those messages as I was preparing this message. And there's some beautiful content there. What it looks like to to let Jesus set the pace for your life in order to experience joy and peace and true life. What it looks like to embrace the Beatitudes as the way that we actually interpret our world. What it looks like to be salt and light and used in God's mission of restoring and renewing humanity and this world. What it it looks like to live in renewed and powerful influence and power by the Holy Spirit. What it looks like to be someone that just keeps your word and has a simplicity of life. What it looks like to love all image bearers, even those who you might count as enemies. What it looks like to look at everyone else and say, there is no other for me. There are only broken image bearers that that desperately need Christ. And I'm one of them. And we can love and serve both the oppressed and the oppressor. We can wade into the most difficult situations, not with hate. We can speak truth. We need to say racism's heresy and it's evil. But we also need to recognize this person needs desperate transformation of Jesus Christ. They don't need my hate and my anger and my judgment. 
Conversations in families and in our city need to be shown this way forward of transformation in Christ. No human being, even the perpetrators of the worst evil, is themselves the face of evil. The more evil they're expressing is just the more desperately they need Jesus and God's put us in their lives. And God might enable us to transform them. Loving all image bearers. Living primarily for God. Bringing your deepest desires before him and allowing him to shape them. Treasuring what Jesus treasures. I'm just reading to you off what you guys have done. Entrusting yourselves to a gracious God, not condemning or shaming others, but shifting to a Christ-like love. Allowing God to bring you to himself in daily, dependent, loving relationship. It's what the Lord prayer accomplishes. That's what so much in this world accomplishes in our lives. And we have the opportunity to do that together. I'm going to close with one little story, and it's what Chrysostom closed with when he was preaching on this passage. And again, Chrysostom's whole approach on this passage was to give you an imagination of the life that you might want to live. And he says, I want you to imagine in our city two men. Two men that have amassed great amounts of wealth, but have done it in a just way. And then he interestingly says as a sidebar, I'm not entirely convinced you can amass great wealth in a just way. I think the poor always have to be oppressed, but nonetheless. And he comes back. So he says, for the purpose of our thought experiment, two men that have amassed great wealth in a just way. And you get to sit back and watch them live their lives. And the first man, you see that the more he gets, the more he wants. And, and it's greed upon greed, and it turns him more inward, and it causes strife in his family, and he's not loving or investing in anyone else. And in fact, the money is just a destructive path, and it's a curse to him. And, and he gets more and more unpleasant to be around because he's greedy, and he's arrogant, and he's filled with himself. And he goes on and on in that description. And he says, then there's this man who's amassed this great wealth and says, God, what do you want me to do with this? And he uses it to leverage it. He leverages all his privilege and all he is to love and to serve those that don't have it. And every time he's generous, it breeds more generosity in all those that are around him. And love and charity and, and good fruit marks everything about this man's life. It's generous. It's loving. It's kind. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, which one of these men would you want to spend time with? It's an obvious answer, right? Then he says, which one of these men would you want to be? Hopefully, again, an obvious answer. And next he says, which one of these men sounds like Jesus? We are united, if you're a follower of Jesus, to someone that is the perfect representation of all the fruits of the Spirit. And if you are united with him, walking arm in arm with him, his Holy Spirit is indwelling you and empowering you to be transformed and to live for him in ways that you cannot yet imagine are possible. And so let's commit to each other as followers of Jesus to stoke our imagination of what God could do in this church, in the churches in the city, and transformation outside these doors. Jesus is amazing, and we have the privilege of putting him on display in our own lives through our own experience and then in others' lives through investing in loving and serving them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. I pray that you would help us to courageously live and pursue you. I pray that anyone here that does not know Jesus would be drawn into your presence today, that they would recognize that their hope and their future is in Christ and that they are not here today by accident. I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, to embrace the constraints you have put in our lives, to stay close to you, and to imagine what life could look like fully and fruitfully devoted to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.